Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. Um, my name is Mitchell, and I get to serve here on staff. And uh, I am also very excited for Scott to come back because um, it's it's been a great summer, and we've really enjoyed summer in the Psalms, and we're going to wrap that up today. And I'm I'm really excited. And as those of you who know Scott uh, even a little bit, you know he's he at the, first of all he's a friend, and I'm really excited to have our friend back on a consistent basis on Sunday mornings with us. And I'm excited to hear all of their, uh, their updates. I haven't really been, we haven't been in a whole lot of contact, so I'm excited to hear with you how their summer's been. But hey, before we hop in today, I just want to say how incredible it was to sit and just talk about how great God is this morning with you all. And seeing those songs of praise and exaltation uh, of who God is, it is a powerful thing for me um, and really unique to be able to do it uh, with my church family. So grateful to be able to be with you this morning. Before we hop into our psalm for the morning, though, uh, I want to take a pause and go back and look at the summer. We've been in the psalms this summer and have had a number of speakers uh, speak on many different psalms, and I just want to go back and try and sum them up for us, as Christy said, that there's, there's been a lot. We've covered uh, a large range of psalms from different types of psalms, written from different authors. And so let's go back to the beginning, uh, where Jamie Johnson took us to Psalm 93. And he started out by sharing this analogy. And this analogy of, we're going to look at the psalms like you would if you go snorkeling. You got these goofy little goggles, as he described them, which don't let you breathe through your nose. And you're staring down into the ocean, and you're trying to see all these things. And the ocean is so vastly huge, and you have such a small, minimal perspective on the ocean. In some ways, that I think really encapsulated how we looked at the Psalms this summer, that we had a handful of weeks to really look at a handful of Psalms to a small degree. And I just want to encourage you as we go back into John next Sunday to really spend more time in the Psalms. Keep reading, keep studying, keep seeking to understand what these beautiful letters say. So in Psalm 93, Jamie Johnson talked about the importance for right worship, which uh, again, being a part of that setting this morning and right worship and exalting and praising God on the throne, beautiful. Uh, The next week, Olivia Potoff shared with us in Psalm 115 uh, and calling us to recognize and repent of the idols that we have in our lives and really starting with self. And she shared that really powerful quote from Martin Luther King talking about how humans are natural idol factories. Ouch. And yet real. Uh, Then we hit into Psalm 32 where John Ratcliffe spoke about the importance of confession, uh, both private with you and the Lord, but also public with some trusted and shared people and the power that there is in that and the power that we see in that. If we go to James or a number of places in the New Testament. Then we went into Psalm 139 where Ed uh, asked us a really powerful question, which has been on my mind the rest of this summer of what uh, is more important to us, what we think about God or what God thinks about us and articulating that God thinks about us way more than I think we could ever really imagine or come to understand uh, and the power of this all-powerful God who considers us, who thinks of us in the grand scheme of everything that he is doing and done. He knows us. Then we went into Psalm 32 where Jamie Johnson again uh, 
invited us to bring our questions, to bring our concerns, to bring our doubts to a layer to God and seek the source and the answer to those questions and not go to other places that may be off or wrong, but to go to the true source for that. And then last week, Jamie Nolanoff, uh, we went into the first portion of Psalm 71 and uh, she talked about living a lifetime of experiencing God's faithfulness. What a beautiful sentence that she used to kind of encapsulate her message. And it reminded me this past week of the Israelites and how they wandered through the desert for 40 years and then the passing of leadership from Moses to Joshua and then they march into the promised land. And as they cross over the Jordan, they pick up some stones. And on the other side of the Jordan River, they set up uh, what scripture tells us is an Ebenezer or an altar. And it's this symbol of sacrifice to the Lord, but it's also referred to, if you go into Joshua's journey, they refer to it as every time we pass by it, may it remind us of God's faithfulness over his people, not just you individually, but his family, his body, his church. And it really got me thinking of all these times in life where God has been faithful in my life, my family's life, where he's gone before us, he's behind us, he's right beside us. And I, it just, I kept just chewing on that this week. And I want to invite you, it has nothing to do with today's message, but invite you, if you're taking notes or maybe you send yourself a text message or whatever, what are those Ebenezers for you in your life? Because the reality is life, life gets hard and we easily forget, at least I do, I easily forget God's faithfulness in my life. Everything from the big things to like the car not working super great this past week, which is just a challenge that Warren and I have been in for the past couple of weeks. And I just, I try and own it. I try to fix it all. I try and figure it out on my own and forget to be reminded of God's faithfulness and his provision and his hand in my life. And that catches us up to today, the last week of the summer in the Psalms. And I'll start with a quick story. Our high school group went rafting this past weekend. Oh, actually, this past Friday. It was wonderful. We had a ton of fun. Uh, no one got lost. No one even actually fell out of our boat uh, unwillingly. There was, well, maybe unwillingly. There were some moments where some people uh, fell out not on their own volition, but it wasn't because of a rapid. But uh, it was a great time, and we went on the upper portion of the Deschutes out of Mop, and, and just beautiful. It was a perfect day. The water was a little chilly. We, you could like hop in and spend about three minutes, then you want to get back out because you're just a little chilly. But it was this beautiful reminder of my childhood. I actually grew up going rafting in high school when I was in high school youth group on the Deschutes, and remember then, and I was reminded this past week, of the un- just unfathomable beauty that's in Central Oregon. And the, the part that really struck me is as you look at these pictures, as you can see uh, the, the drastic contrast between what is living and what is dead. Uh, specifically in these two pictures where you get these beautiful lush riverbanks and trees and bushes and grasses, and it isn't but a couple feet from the bank that it dies. And what's really cool is that scripture actually has something to say about this. Uh, and it's in multiple places, but today we're going to end our summer in the Psalms by going back to the beginning. So if you want to turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, if you have your paper Bible, if you have your digital Bible, uh, just go ahead and tap and make it happen. But before we get there, just to set up, there is some contrast that David is speaking to in this psalm. 
And I want to invite you to look for that today. Look for this contrast like those photos that you saw where there is this contrast that he is speaking to and it's a difference between not just what is alive and dead but actually what is righteous and what is wicked, what is blessed and what is not blessed. So if you would uh, join me in standing if you're able and willing for the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away, and therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please grab a seat. So David starts out with an image of what a blessed person is not like in in verse 1. One, And there's this unique progression that he speaks to, and he goes from walking to standing to then sitting, and the contrast is this wickedness side, it is this unrighteous side, a not blessed side, and when we're walking, I'm reminded in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about narrow is the path and wide is the path, and we're walking on the narrow path, and we're following Jesus, and as we're walking, we recognize these things that are associated with the wide path, and we see these things as we're continuing to follow Jesus, but we went like, oh, oh, that, that the covetousness comes in, or the idolatry comes in, the sin of some kind, we begin to notice it, we recognize it, but we're continuing to walk, and that next step we begin to stand. It's no longer we're heading down the path that we're actually stopped and we're fully entertaining what this sinful wickedness may be. And we're, we're almost having a, a conversation back and forth. We're entertaining the idea of what it could look like. Well, this, well, maybe not that, but this or that. And it becomes a distraction in our life and takes us off the path that the Lord calls us to follow. And then that last step in the progression of sitting in this unrighteousness, this unblessedness, this wickedness, and begins to become a piece of our identity. I think we can all look around in culture around us and see there are people that have identified with what the Lord has deemed wicked and unrighteous and unholy, and it's a part of who they say they are. And this is where we see we're fully off the path that the Lord has called us to. David covers all areas of life, whether we're moving in a direction, whether we're standing still or we're choosing to sit or rest. He's speaking to the the who and the where, who we surround ourselves with and where we choose to function and be. Those determine a large amount of what it means to be blessed. When I was in high school, Uh, there was a a quote that was shared that I remember, I don't remember who shared it. I do remember that the quote came from Andy Stanley, and I think there needs to be some more context and more building out of the quote, but it's sticky and catchy, and it 
15, there wasn't a whole lot in my brain that stuck and caught. And so this was one, though. And the quote is that your friends determine the direction and quality of your life. Now, is that totally true all by itself? No. But yet I think it is encapsulating what David is saying here, that who we surround ourselves with, it does begin to impress on us. What type of environments we choose to step into can lead to blessing or they can lead to not blessing. They can lead to poor decisions, which we'll look at a little bit later. David is speaking to those environments and the people that we surround ourselves with. But then we get to verse 2 and we hit a butt. And we're going to pause uh, because athletics is a big part of my background. When I read a butt in scripture, in my eyes, it's a momentum swing. It's like when you're watching a basketball game or maybe you're playing in a basketball game, you're coaching a basketball game, and your team goes down and they get a really nice, just good ball movement and a nice two-point shot. Like, sweet. Ball comes down the other way, you get a great defensive stop, you get a steal, a little outlet pass to a fast break to a nice layup. Momentum starting to shift. Team inbounds the ball, you steal the ball at half court, somebody rolls down and slams it. Momentum has totally swung in your favor. And the other team coaches probably scrambling, calling a timeout, trying to get things to calm down, to refocus his team, to then move into the next phase of the game. This, but in scripture, and a, a number of other ones, um, this is a momentum shift where David is saying, blessed is the one who does not do these things, but blessed is the one, verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. David is giving us an image now of what it means to be blessed. Blessed is the one, it could be read, who delights in the law and who meditates on it day and night. And here's, when we talk about God's law, we are not talking about portions of scripture that we like or portions of scripture that we feel that we can accomplish on our own. We are talking about the full counsel of God's word. The things we understand, the things that we don't understand, the things we like to hear, the things that build us up, and the things that we don't like, the things that are challenging, the things that to us don't make a whole lot of sense, and yet we must trust that the counsel of God's word is full and complete. We cannot take bits and pieces of God's law and like, well, this piece will bless me, but this piece won't. doesn't work that way. That is not how God intended his scriptures to be memorized, to be thought of, to be studied by his people. When David says the full counsel of God's law, we're talking about the full counsel of God's law, the whole scriptures. And delight is not a word that is used in our vernacular, in our culture uh, often, but delight has this deep pleasure to it. There is a deeply pleased piece of the word delight. And it, it begs the question that do we find deep pleasure in the word of God. When we sit in, when we, and we'll talk about what meditate really is, but when we meditate on God's word, is there a delight to us? And if there's not, do we still move towards it? Do we still open the scriptures? Because there are times in my life where I don't really want to read the Bible. There are times when, it, when I don't delight. I'm not deeply pleased by scripture because it's way too confusing or it's telling me things about how awful of a person I am and how much I need Jesus and I can't do it on my own. That's not exactly a feel-good piece of scripture to read and yet 
the Lord says that there's delight in that for his people. And then David says, meditate on his law day and night. We get these two markers of blessed is the one who delights, finds deep pleasure, and meditates. And when I think of the word meditate, I think of somebody sitting cross-legged, humming to themselves, maybe rocking back and forth, and you're like, it's a little, okay, it's a little different. Really what, what this word is translated into for us and how we get to it is there is a, uh, be, it goes beyond reading the scriptures. Meditate is this aspect of study, of memorizing, of reciting back to oneself, of viewing the world. We talked about this summer, having a biblical worldview, viewing things around us through the lens that scripture gives us when we know it, when we study it, when we, to a agree, are consumed by God's law. It is a ever-present thought on our mind as followers of Jesus. And does David really mean like day and night? Does he literally mean meditate on God's law day and night? Maybe. We're not totally sure, but I don't think it's a bad practice. For me, personally, I, I really fight for time in the morning to read and study and pray and journal with the scriptures open. Not just read it, but to truly study God's scriptures, to know it, to understand it, to be able to process it. And then in the evening times, I also enjoy, re not enjoy, I don't always enjoy, but I choose to, to the best of my ability, definitely not perfect, but I do my best to read a book that is somewhat challenging or growing to me that's, a, that's about scripture right now. It's a book called Hollywood Heroes by a guy named Frank Turek, who's an apologist, and it's this idea of seeing God's storyline, the, the story of God through our Hollywood films that we, like I'm in a chapter right now about Lord of the Rings, super cool, it's a lot of fun, there was one on Star Wars, even better, here we go, there is an aspect where David's speaking day and night, why not day and night? We can't be fully consumed with it and be in the scriptures all day long, there are things we have to do, there's responsibilities that we have and I understand that, and yet, what does it look like for us as a people to meditate on God's word day and night. There's a wonderful quote by Charles Spurgeon that says, God's law is our pleasure when the God of the law is our God. Is the God of scripture your God? Is he on the throne of your life? Let's keep moving on here while I, so I don't run out of time. Okay, verse I'm going to reread verse 2 and we'll go into verses 3 and 4. But those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on this law day or night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff and the wind blows them away. I like trees. I think trees are really cool. Uh, I'm born and raised Oregonian, so I'm in the state that has a vast majority of trees, and I love it. I grew up going over to Central Oregon and visiting uh, my grandparents who lived there uh, in Bend and in Sun River, and there's trees everywhere, and I love trees. We had a tree growing up um, in the cul-de-sac that I lived on. It was a cherry tree, and there was a handful of us boys in this cul-de-sac, and I was a total, I was a total boy 
growing up. I was running around in the summer times with my rubber boots, my swim trunks, and my bike helmet, ripping around on my, on my little bike. And we, were we would climb this cherry tree in the afternoons, and we'd just sit in this cherry tree and eat cherries until we were sick. All, all of us had our helmets on. It was great. We had a ton of, I love trees. And this imagery of a tree is significant because when I think of full, mature trees, they're ones you can get up in and climb, and they're not going to fall over. They're sturdy. They're healthy. They're rugged. They've been tested by the wind. They're strong. They're dependable. Um, flip with me just a couple chapters forward to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 17. Uh, God also gives Jeremiah an image here of a person that is like a tree. It's a, it's a wonderful another image to reinforce kind of what we see David telling us. John, Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. It, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Blessed is the person that is like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water that are nourished by the ground. And this is the imagery we get of blessed is the person who meditates and delights in God's word. And that person is like a tree. That person is rooted like a tree, drawing sustenance from the stream, drawing sustenance from the word as they delight in the word of God. Verse 4 says, But not so are the wicked, for they are like chaff. Here's this contrast again. Blessed is the person, this is what they look like, but not for, so for the wicked, because they look like chaff. And I'll be real honest with you, up until I was about 21, I didn't actually know what chaff was. Grew up in the suburbs uh, my whole life. I Farming terminology wasn't something that I thought of or studied. And my sister, she uh, moved to Nebraska a couple years after college into this tiny little town of a thousand people. And it's a corn farming town. That's what they do. And there's no stoplights. Everybody knows everybody. Nobody wears a seatbelt. It's wonderful, actually. It's a great place to be, truly. Um, for long periods of time, not so much my cup of tea. But to go visit, it's great. The first time I went to visit her, though, I went in October right in the middle of harvest. And she had become good friends with a family who then she married into. Uh, and so this is her like uncle-in-law, I guess is. It's her, her husband's uncle who farms, I think it's 1,600 acres of corn every year. And so I go out and I'm just all giddy as you can imagine. I'm like, this is totally weird. And we pull up to the farm. There's this 10-year-old driving this massive tractor, disking, disking their field, like turning their field over after they'd harvested. He jumps out. And I'm like, that tractor is like millions of dollars. That's insane. Oh, my goodness. And we go out, and we, uh, got, I got to ride in the combine and got to kind of watch the whole process. And as they, uh, if Coleman, if you want to show up that, that photo. So this is corn that's getting moved from the tractor into the grain truck. After, so it went harvester, the combine, into grain tractor, and then into grain truck. And you can kind of see along like the edge of the truck, there's this like mist. It almost looks like, like dust. That's chaff. If you go to the next photo, 
all that, that is, that dust is chaff. And chaff is this husk around the kernel. And so when they go back and they bring all the corn back to their, their house and where they have all their silos and they're drying it out and they're dumping it and they're moving it, chaff is everywhere. It's like snow and it's Nebraska. So there's nothing, it's relatively flat and it drifts up. It literally drifts up as the wind blows and there's these small little piles of chaff that look like snow and that stuff gets blown around by the wind. You drive by, you walk by it. It's flurrying by you. That's what David is describing someone who is not meditating, is not delighting in the law of the Lord. Not so for the wicked. They're like chaff, blown around. Let's go to Ephesians. Paul gives us another image of this. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul gives us an image of a New Testament follower of Jesus and what it means and what it looks like when they're not rooted. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11 is where we'll pick this up. And he says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants or children tossed back and forth by the waves and blown where there may be every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul gives us another image of somebody who is tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine like chaff. It doesn't take much to get chaff moving. We as followers of Christ must be rooted and established. We'll go one more verse. That we as we grow up in every way into him who is the head and into Christ. That is the image. That we are obtaining to be like Christ. So we must know him. Paul also speaks about this power of speaking truth in love. It's really hard to speak truth if we don't actually know truth. And there's one way of knowing truth, and that is meditating on God's word. This is truth. The youth hear it every single time we open scripture. This is capital T truth. This is not my truth. This is not your truth. This is not somebody else's truth. This is God's truth. This is the truth. We must fall in love with the truth. There's lots of counterfeit truths. There's a lot of made-up truths. That's that craftiness blown by human cunning. There is one truth, and if we're going to speak truth, we must know truth. Back to verse 2. Delight and meditate on God's word day and night. But how do we speak truth in the way of love. Well, the reality is that God is love, that there is no love outside of God. And so if we want to be loving towards people, we must know the one who is love. Yet another reason to spend time in the Gospels, like we have been as a church for almost two years now, outside of this summer, 
knowing the one who is incarnate love from the Father. Let's bump down verses 5 and 6. We'll wrap this up in this psalm and we'll move into some kind of practical ways to to walk forward. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The reality is that living wickedly is simply just not a great call. There's nothing profound there. It's just not a good way to live life. Life is hard already. Life is challenging as it is. And when we're living in wickedness, chances are it's going to become even more challenging. Even harder to do the right thing. And when we're following a God who is righteous, who gives us an example of what righteousness looks like, Things aren't necessarily better. There's still challenge in life. Following Jesus isn't easy. But yet, there's a heck of a lot more joy than when we're choosing to live in in wickedness. And I think specifically, and I I said we can come back to this, think of David's life specifically. Here's this young man who's anointed by uh, a prophet, sent from the Lord, and then sent back to the shepherd fields. It's like, yeah, you, you are the next king of God's people. Go tend the flock. Go beat those bears up. Go turn away the wolves. Go do what you were doing. Then he gets called up to the king's palace where he will be. And he's playing the harp to soothe these evil spirits that are tormenting King Saul. Becomes friends, builds a relationship. Then next thing you know, King Saul is trying to kill him. He's still the anointed king of God's people. He's still seeking the Father. He's still listening to the Lord. And he's being chased down. He's on the run for his life by the king of the nation. Life was not easy for David. Bopping around from cave to cave. Getting ridiculed from his friends because he chose to cut the corner off of Solomon's cloak instead of killing him. He, life wasn't easy, and then he becomes king. After the death and loss of Saul, but also his, his friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. And he becomes king, and later in his, his reign, he makes a poor decision and to not go to war. And he takes a nap, and he wakes up in the afternoon, he goes for a walk on his balcony, and he has this whole poor decision-making process that happens from one choice to not do what the Lord is asking him to do. And he has his issue with Bathsheba, and life becomes even more miserable. And sin is covered up with more sin, and sin is covered up with more sin. And he comes to a place, and ultimately we get this beautiful example of owning your decisions, repenting from your decisions, and choosing to turn back to the way in which the Lord. But his life was miserable when he made a wicked decision. Life is already challenging, and the Lord calls us to live a life in following of Him. It's not, it doesn't make it any easier, but I think that we can build a case that it's maybe less miserable than living in wickedness. I tend to lean optimistic, uh, 
believe the best as I smack the microphone with my hand. Believe the best in people. And, and I really believe that most people want to live a blessed life. I don't think if you asked anybody out there, like, man, do you want to live a wicked life? That they're like, oh, yeah, sign me up, I'm in. I, I don't think that's the reality of the world that we live in. I just think what people think to be blessed is not what God has already said to be blessed is. This is that whole truth thing. If we don't know what truth is, we can't live according to the truth. We'll try to live according to our truth. The world gives us lies on what it means to be blessed. Prime example, uh, the world says that possessions on earth are a sign of significance, importance, value, even wealth to a degree. And the thing is that that's nothing new. Old Testament times, before Jesus, that was a thing. If you had money, wealth, significance, power, you were considered a blessed person. God had favor on your life versus those who didn't have as much. Well, they must have done something wrong. They must have been sinful. They, that's why they're sick. They, they were, come from a gene, genealogy and a generational path of sin. They believe this in Jesus' time too, that those who had more were blessed by God and those who did not have we're not blessed by God. And it couldn't be anything from the truth. And Jesus flipped this on his head 2,000 years ago. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. Jesus flipped the script on its head and he said, actually, to store up things here on earth, it doesn't really mean anything. It just means you're more likely to lose it from being destroyed or somebody stealing it. Store up things, have possessions, things that bring value and worth are not things here, but things in heaven, things above. Psalm 1 gives us a picture, gives us an idea of what righteousness, of what blessed life looks like. Here's the, here's the catch though. We are all wicked. In the sight of God, we are wicked. We have fallen short of his standard, his glory, his holiness. Both Ecclesiastes 7 and Romans 3 tell us that there is no one righteous, not even one. As we pursue Jesus and long to live a righteous life, we fall short. We stumble. Sometimes we are looking over at wickedness. We entertain it as we are on our walk. We sometimes stand with sinners or even sit with mockers. We act wickedly and, and at times we're tossed to and fro like chaff. Where our feet are firmly planted in midair. And there's really no sense of what's up or down. So what makes us righteous? What brings about blessing in life? Well, it starts with Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus' death and resurrection is what brings people to righteousness, the covering of his blood, the pain, the debt that we owe God from our wickedness. And how do we participate in his work, in his act of redemption is by accepting him, accepting his work, and for accepting his forgiveness of our sins and repenting from our sin. 
turning away from, coming back to the narrow path as Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus is our, our perfect sacrifice that covers our sin. First John 1 John 1.9, John tells us this, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, he will purify us from all unrighteousness. God knows the way of righteousness because he is righteous. That's a part of his character. That's who he is. Jesus led the way in righteousness, in perfection, because he is God with us. He is the image of righteousness here on earth in human form. And he calls us to follow him. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to try and figure it out on our own. We don't have to try and strong arm and struggle. We just need to follow Jesus. When we were going through the armor of God as a, as a youth group, um, there was kind of a, a sticky slogan that we came up with each piece of armor. And the breastplate of righteousness, we came up with that righteousness is not about perfection, but it's about repentance. We are unperfect people, incapable of being perfect which is why God sent his son, Jesus. So that we may be made righteous by him, by his action, by his work, what he has done. So as we close, I wanna, I wanna give some practical next steps for all of us here. Um, because at the end of the day, verse two of Psalm one is the crux of it all. It's the whole aspect of Psalm chapter one for one, but I think that there's a layer to that. It's, it's a very large piece of our walk with the Lord, of us understanding who God is, that we may delight in the full counsel of God's word and we may, may meditate on it day and night. So the first thing is make time. Not find time, not think about it, make time time to study God's word. Make time to read God's word. If we believe this is a priority, then we ought to act on it. For me, if I don't do it in the morning, it doesn't happen. I, we don't have any kids. We have a dog, but I don't think he counts. We don't have any kids. We have ample time in our schedules, and our schedules are still full, both being in full-time ministry. We, I have to make time for myself to read scripture for me. Is it before I am a pastor, I am a son of God. And I must follow him for myself before I ever try and do anything in the whole pastor realm that I get a function in, which I love. But first and foremost, my relationship with Jesus has to be primary before I try and pastor or lead anybody else. Make time. We all have full schedules and they're about to get fuller as school kicks off. Make time for it. And it could start with 10 minutes. Maybe that's not enough. You're like, I need a half an hour. Do it. Make the time to read God's word and then take it a step further and actually study God's word. It's one thing to read it. Reading is great. Study is a whole different ballgame. Because when we're reading it, we're just trying to get information in. And hope that something sits. When we study it, there's an intention to know and to understand what is being said to us from God's word. Get a study Bible. I did not bring mine today. I should have brought it. 
get a study Bible. I live and die by my study Bible because there's portions of scripture I don't understand. And there's other people who have done the work that I get to learn from in a study Bible. If you want uh, ideas or um, thoughts on what study Bible to get, come talk to me. I'm happy to give you some ideas. But get a study Bible and study God's word. Really seek to understand what the word is telling us. And if you want to go to an even deeper level than that, get a Bible commentary. Uh, there are loads out there that are awesome. There are free ones online that you can use that are great. But this is, a, I talked about um, a, a Bible commentary that my grandpa had that was a John Wycliffe, for, uh, just a first era of reformers. Uh, I think it's 15th century that he was around. Just wonderful Bible. But it's his thoughts on scripture. It's his personal commentary, his comments on scripture. It's fascinating to read from these theologians that are been tested over time, they've been around for hundreds of years, and their thoughts on scriptures from years ago. It's really, really powerful. The last one, get discipled. I cannot stress this enough. Uh, at the end of the day, if we aren't getting discipled by somebody, we're, we, are, we are limiting our ability to follow Jesus together. I personally, being discipled is a top priority for me. And there's the discipled piece within my spiritual life, and then there's the mentorship piece of life in general. Being discipled is huge. I am who I am today because I got discipled. Period. I didn't go to school. I got discipled by men who know how to teach scripture well, who know how to ask questions well, who are given permission to ask hard questions and to speak into my life. Who's discipling you? Who are you following Jesus with? With the youth, we use this term one up, one beside, one below. Who are you following? Who are you following Jesus with? And who's following you as you follow Jesus? 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. Who are you being discipled by, with, and who are you discipling? When there is a weight of responsibility on us in our maturity of following Christ to then pass that along to the next generation, that brings a level of urgency and intensity and it's like, I have to follow Jesus well because there's other people that are looking to me for answers. And if we don't have the answers, that's okay. It's not about us being perfect, but are we pointing people to Christ? At the end of the day, that's all Jesus asked us to do. Go make disciples. Teach them to obey what I've taught you. Baptize them in my name to the whole world. Go and make disciples. Are you being discipled? And then here's a, just a, a short list of books and podcasts that I have found uh, beneficial to my faith journey uh, as I've grown as a follower of Jesus. Any book for the most part that you can find by C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, A.W. Tozer, or Dallas Willard, it's a great place to start. Really, really good place. If you want a specific example or a book, come have a conversation with me. Uh, we can help kind of narrow it down. And then there's a, a list of podcasts, uh, The Bible in a Year with Father Mike. This is something that uh, Pastor Olivia Potoff has been doing this year, and she's really loved it and just encouraged us multiple times with it. Uh, Lisa Childers' podcast is another great one. She's an apologist. Um, Remnant Radio is a different kind of sector of podcasts that I really listen to. They try and help get people outside of their theological echo chamber is kind of their slogan, but they try and get you thinking outside of this silo that we grow up in. 
we all have them. It is what it is. But they invite different voices on this podcast that have from different backgrounds and have conversations about different topics. Find one that intrigues you. Uh, the Bible Project podcast is a great one. And trusted sermons from pastors that you know of that are biblically sound, that are going to teach the word of God. Not a bunch of opinions or ideas or th- what is the word actually telling us and how do we apply it to our life and allow it to transform us. That is huge. And at the end of the day, what interests you when it comes to your walk with Jesus? What's intriguing to you? Man, I'm really interested in apologetics and building a defense for the faith. How do I do that really well? Man, dive into that. Go all into that. Discover what the Lord has for you in that. Maybe you're really interested in the theology side of it all and the history of the church and how we've gotten to where we are. Love it. Let's find some resources for that itch to be scratched. Because anything that is inviting us to take a step in following Jesus, to know and to understand him better, that he may be glorified and exalted and lifted up in our life, that he would get the glory alone in our life as a good neck step for you, church. So as we close today, uh, I want to pray over you. But the crux of Psalm chapter 1 is verse 2. Delight in the law of God. Meditate on it day and night. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and that we get to come to you this morning and gather in your name, Lord. We, we invite you to draw us to a deeper level, a deeper step, a deeper understanding of who you are, God. Not that we may... Uh, be able to boast at all, but actually, Lord, that we may be humbled by you, God, that our need for you would be revealed to the utmost powerful way, Lord, that we have no option and no choice but to bow our knee, to surrender to your grace and your mercy and love poured out to us through your son, Jesus. God, I pray today that that there would be a hunger grown in your church for your truth, for your word, Uh, Not for us to be puffed up or to be these uh, people that seem or act like we know better than others, but simply so that we may be able to articulate and communicate your love and your truth to people around us. Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.